This episode is sponsored by Bloomberg Law, an all-in-one platform that provides fast access to the information law firms and legal departments need. To request a trial, go to bna.com slash Bloomberg Law. Welcome to Big Law Business. I'm Josh Block. Casey Sullivan, who usually co-hosts this podcast with me, is out today. For this episode, I will be joined by Joe Patrice of Above the Law. We're going to talk about one of the biggest business of law stories of the year so far, the associate salary increases. In particular, the raise of first-year starting salaries in big law to $180,000 a year. Earlier this month, Above the Law broke the story that Cravath would be raising associate-based salaries, the first such raise since 2007. In the days and weeks since the Cravath announcement, many firms have matched that rate. There's been some backlash of the raises from the corporate councils, the folks who pay the law firm's bills. And while many firms have matched, others have publicly stated that they won't. In some ways, the story about the lowest ranking attorneys in a law firm receiving a small raise has turned into a referendum on the financial health of law firms and the legal industry. Joining me to sort this all out will be Above the Law's Joe Patrice. And I'll note that we recorded this podcast on June 29th. Joe, these raises are something that many had anticipated, but Above the Law was really prepared for. Talk to me about the coverage of this story even before the Cravath news broke. Yeah, even before this broke, we'd been talking for quite some time about how it had been almost a decade. We really needed to start seeing some kind of change in the associate compensation. We'd even started a new feature about a month beforehand on speculating about raising to 190. So it kind of caught us by surprise that they just jumped as soon as we started talking about it. Had we known that it was they were just waiting for us to talk about it, we would have done this a long time ago. It reminded me of uh, Greg Storr, Bloomberg News' uh, Supreme Court reporter, famously had you know sort of every every iteration of his article written for the Obamacare decision. And it, and I think David mentioned in his story, David Lapp mentioned in his story, that he had already started a draft of this story before Cravath announced. Oh, yeah. No, he, he'd started thinking about what would happen when the next people did it, because he was working on those 190 stories. So obviously he had to change the number because it was really 180 instead of 190. And who did it? Although, let's be honest, he assumed it would be Cravath. And then uh, there we were. He was he was very prepared. That's why we had a like 1,500-word article that went up about 20 minutes after the announcement. In the case of Cravath, how did the raises happen? Uh, associates, my understanding is associates actually brought it up at a town hall. I actually don't know too much about the internals of Cravath, but the issue of raises has been a bubbling up issue for quite some time. We've been talking about it largely because you've seen over the last few years as the recovery's taken more and more, gained more and more steam, that more of these firms have been upping their bonuses. And associates were starting to get frustrated, realizing you have the money to pay us, but you refuse to guarantee it. You know, you're leaving us in this very contingent state. And so it was time for somebody to make a move and the agitation worked. How much money are we talking about? What was the base salary for associates and what did it become? Walk me through it. For most of the big firms that were on the top of the scale market, uh, with the few exceptions who do really above the fray stuff like Wachtel. So most of the firms were paying 160 for first year associates and now it's 180. Most And along the track for most of these firms, each year is somewhat lockstep. So your first year you get your 160 you did, now 180. Their next year you'd get, you know, you'd get your raise. For all of those years up to the eighth 
or ninth year, depending on how the firm chooses to handle partnership. Pe associates are getting between a 20 grand or a 35 grand raise over what they otherwise would have been making. Will this play into bonuses? Uh, you know, bonuses, uh, as you have seniority, it's a much bigger part of your, mm -hmm. your compensation package. So how do you, you know, what do we... I have an unpopular theory on Above the Law. I, maybe it's not unpopular. It gets a lot of flack from people. So I've been very on board, you know, very on top of the idea that I think these firms are kind of crazy. I understand Cravath going to 180. I understand a lot of these major New York City, Washington, D.C. firms doing this. I have been a little flabbergasted at the move to flatten associate salaries across the country. When firms just raise everyone in their Dallas office to 180, where the cost of living is nowhere near the same, I've been a little shocked. Think, even though the Dallas people argue with me and hate me over this, I actually think that what might end up happening with bonuses is that the New York firms will blow it out a little bit in order to stay ahead of what's going on in the other parts of the country, even though the n nominal base salary is the same. In David's story breaking this news, he wrote that Above the Law received the memorandum announcing the raises from multiple sources. Can you talk about the mechanics of reporting this story? Yeah, and I'll talk more about how all these stories have gone, because there have been multiple ways. Most of the time, within minutes of a of a memorandum coming out, we will get either one or two text messages with either the memo attached to it, or, or emails, emails or texts, with the memo either attached or a quick screenshot of their monitor with the memo on it. Uh, a lot of people are doing it that way so that they can stay completely anonymous as far as leaking confidential information to us. So we get those, we'll get one, sometimes we'll get just one, at which point we'll sit around for a little bit, try and piece together what's going on, dig back into the well of previous sources from that firm to see if anyone else is willing to confirm for us. Generally speaking, it's not hard. Within minutes of anybody making a raise, we usually have between two to 10 tips, depending on the size of the firm. And it just keeps they keep piling up while we read, while we write with increasing levels of frustration. You've not put anything up about this. I'm like, that was 15 minutes ago and we're still writing. You need to calm down. Back with the crevath part of this, we were speculating that in some ways this is a great PR move for a law firm. They send a message that they care about their associates, that they prize and will reward top talent, which translates, you know, shorthand for students at the top ranked law schools with the best grades. And they send a message to their competitors that we can afford to do this. Can you? Yeah. Um, so talk about this as a PR move. Do you see it that way? Yes, I absolutely see it as a PR move and as a recruiting tool. That's actually part of the reason why I found it so weird that there's been this flattening across the country because obviously there's not as much need for a firm with a regional Texas practice to be paying the exact same as Cravath. If anything, I think my colleague Ellie wrote an article that hit on this. It's quite possible Cravath didn't understand what it was what it was getting into and possibly shortchanged the market because I think they intended to be the leader who is sending out this PR move. We can afford it. We have this. This is where the best people should go. And they were probably stunned when more than the top 20 firms followed them. One of my reactions to the story was in 2015, more than 40% of of law school graduates do not have long-term full-time jobs as attorneys. I should say, as attorneys that require passing the bar. Since the financial crisis, many law firms have hired smaller first-year classes. So there's some part of this that's like, it's, this isn't that many people in the grand scheme of things. It's a small percentage of law school graduates. Do you have a sense of numbers?
numbers of, of how many people we're even talking about? How many people, not not off the top of my head, but you're right, it is a smaller number. And it's actually one of the things that gives me some moral pause when I write these stories celebrating the raises, because obviously it's great for these people to who work hard and do all this business to, and complex work to be getting these getting more money. But it also exacerbates what's one of the big problems in law, which is this, well, in the biz, I guess we call the bimodial distribution of salaries, where the average lawyer doesn't make 300 grand like some of these people are at the big law firms. But there's a whole band of them that do, and then nothing, and then a whole band of lawyers who make 50, 60 grand. The problem is all these law schools are marketing to people you should be gunning for this 300 grand when it's really a small sliver of people who can do that. And they charge tuition as though you'll be able to pay it back like you're making that amount of money. And then these people either don't get those jobs or wash out of the jobs because big law is a pyramid scheme. And it's those people on the back end who are kind of lost, unable to pay back their loans, can't find a full-time long-term job that uses their law degree. And that's been a persistent problem. And what worries me, and when we give more money to these folks who are bringing in so much profit for their partners and therefore deserved a little bit more, but when we do that, we're just feeding that law school beast that continues to say, well, look over here, look at how much money you can make here, and entices people into this work that just can't afford to do what the law, to work as a lawyer when the law school's charging that much. Yeah, one of the arguments that is reported that the associates made is associates haven't had a raise in their salaries since 2007. Law school's more expensive, insurance is more expensive, uh, you know, all these cost of living across the board, rent, all these things are more expensive, you know, yeah. and it's tough to have too much sympathy for someone making $160,000 a year, but. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, yeah, it's hard to, and I always have to have this conversation with people who have no no interaction with the law who think this is an absurd amount of money and I go yeah well you got you think that until you remember that they are walking out of school in real terms about 220 grand in the hole so when you think that they're that before they've made made any money before they've put themselves out for getting a mortgage or any of the other big life decisions that people make that add more and more debt to their lives. It's really, it's really a pretty bad place to be, uh, all things considered. Yeah. As the, the dean of my law school used to say is, uh, at the beginning of every year, you've got a brand new Mercedes and you've driven it off a cliff. Yeah. So yeah, that, that's a perfectly good example of what going to law school is. After the Cravath announcement, the immediate next thing we heard, and I think even the same day, was that some firms wanted to make it known immediately that they would be matching. So who were those firms? How did it play out after that Cravath announcement? So the first thing that happened was almost nothing, because uh, obviously it takes a little bit of time before things get moving. Uh, I will I will let people in on the inside of the journalist, the quasi-journalism that is blogging. Uh, the first thing I did after the Cravath announcement was immediately call bunches of friends of mine who are partners at law firms and tell them, you need to know this is happening. Uh, it, so I was partially partially pushing people to make the move. You made it happen. Um, at least with one of them, I, I think I I think I was the first mover there. Uh, but yeah, the first thing that happened, though, was nobody did anything because law firms take some time. Uh, a few hours afterwards, a very small firm, a litigation boutique, if I recall, made the first move to match. Uh, small partnership, so it was easy for them to come to a decision. And that's actually been one of the more interesting things. These small boutiques who are not the big corporate law firms that you 
expect have been pushing because a lot of those litigation boutiques have been making waves by saying, we'll get that top talent. We'll take them out of this corporate system that people don't like, and we'll do these leanly staffed, very high-end litigations. And so they actually were some of the first movers because they could could make a decision on a dime and they put themselves out there. So the first couple were boutiques. Then I think, I can't remember who the first big one to come next was. I know Milbank was in the, within the first day or so. Uh, yeah, so it, some of the old traditional guard then started trickling in afterwards. Talk about the market for associate labor, where one day there hasn't been a raise in nine years, and then one firm changes their rate, and then many more firms match the rate. There are shades of price fixing here, it feels like. Yeah. you know, What does this behavior say about the legal industry? And, and can you think of any examples in other industries that, that work this way? I mean, I mean, I can think of actual monopolies, but uh, but this, yeah, no, I've I've talked for a long time about the the curious monopolistic nature uh, or antitrust behavior of the legal market. It is not in any way illegal. It's not like they sit around and discuss, all right, we're going to do this and you're going to do that. That collusion isn't happening, but. It, it's very suspicious when, especially with bonus season, which we do have every year, and what's the bonus going to be? It is, I think of the last 10 years, eight times out of those 10, how it operates is everyone sits around not knowing what to do. Cravath will say, we'll do this, and every firm matches it. Uh, there's something shady about the idea that the firm, that the firms, even though they don't talk to each other, all just wink and nod, assume Cravath's going to make the decision that that guides the industry. That's that's a little troubling, but not something that necessarily the law is equipped to, to deal with. Some AMLA 200 firms came out pretty quickly to say they would not be matching. Mm-hmm. Which firms and what was their rationale? The first one was Covington, who said, not so much that they wouldn't match, but they said, well, there's no way we're going to match for you people in D.C. We might match in New York. Uh, They were trying to make, I feel as though these firms that were coming out early saying that were trying to very quickly start a counter push. They wanted to, it was, they were the people in a cartoon, in a very Looney Tunes way. They're the folks who have the rock in front of them rolling at them and they're trying desperately to stop it and they're just failing miserably. Covington said that in the hopes that it would get some momentum behind some other firms who says, well, let's slow this down. Uh, It failed because other firms jumped more and more on this market, I think because, as my colleague had said, I think it because they had shortchanged the market and everyone could afford it. And Covington had to reverse itself and ultimately gave everyone the raises that they said they weren't going to be able to do. Safarth Shaw is another firm. They are very adamant that they're not going to do it. And they say that it's absurd to do this. We think that we need to be more cautious. Uh, They have a bunch of very angry associates working for them who talk to us all the time. I think that their logic is... I think their logic is that they want to avoid some a phenomenon that we've talked a little bit about, but that is a little troubling. Law firms are by nature conservative in as far as being non-risk takers. They're also oftentimes very bad at understanding business. And by that, what a what David Latt wrote 
early on, and I think he's right about, is that historically every time the firms announce a raise, a recession comes about 18 months after. And that brings with it layoffs and everything. And the reason isn't, as Safar Shah wants to say, because these firms are acting stupidly. The issue is they've acted stupidly all along. We had a recession. We had a recovery. But the firms refused to recognize that, hey, things are getting better until right when the business cycle is about to end, when they finally pull their heads out and go, oh, I guess things are fine. And that's right when it's about to fall apart again. And that's where that's where Safeworth Shaw, at least, feels we are. And that's why they don't want to raise. And there are other firms, I think, that, that have said, you know, we're mid-market, mm-hmm. you know, even we may be whatever, we may be 90 or 100 or in there in the AMLA top grossing firms. But, you know, we're a mid-market firm. We're not, our clients aren't going to pay more. And I'll get to that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so what are the most notable firms? And, and I'll note that we are recording this on June 29th. <laughs> what are the most notable firms that we still expect to match that that haven't said anything or have? have... I think ultimately Denton's will have to do something. It's a gigantic firm. I think it's losing some cachet every day for being the biggest firm and still not making a move. Uh, Norton Rose Fulbright, we've talked a lot about. It's an it's a very interesting one because I think it's an international firm by trade, but it's has a huge presence in Texas. I think they've been stuck by this flattening of the wages. I think they felt as though there was no risk they were going to have to raise rates, have uh, not rates, well, actually, ultimately rates, but raise salaries in Texas. And then all of their peers in the region have one by one done so. And I think that's why firms like that are the next ones to make a decision. People who've been caught kind of flat footed by that. I actually did a story, was it yesterday or the day before? This is how amazing this whole process has been. I haven't slept. I don't know what day it is. I, the first time I figured that out was when you just said it. Uh, it's It's been brutal. But a couple days ago or today, I wrote this piece, which was a flow chart of how to make the decision whether or not you do a raise. And it, it involves some of the things you just said, like figuring out, are you an AMLA 100 firm? How leveraged are you? Uh, if you are that leveraged, there a way you can get away with this so no one will notice. It it traced the partnership decision. But you're right, like some people it, in the It's a middle. really funny chart, <laughs> and our, 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 our listeners should, should look it up. Yeah, thanks. Uh, it was... Uh, it was one of those things you do when you at like 11 at night when you've been writing all day. Oh, yeah, I can see that. Just like the idea <laughs> popping in your head and saying, oh, I have to do this. Yeah, right? it was uh, it was a moment of, you know, Mountain Dew and and uh, dementia hitting at once. Were there any surprises among the firms that did or did not match or 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 in it's just sort of in the matching and not matching and not moving or the length of time it took for someone to announce? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I guess I. I've spent so much time on this, what markets are matching that I, uh, that that's become really my, my thing is watching people in these different weird places decide to match. But as far as people taking a really long time, I did see that Kazowitz just matched like on my way into here. Uh, that was one of those firms in New York that you felt was in that cusp. You thought they should match, but they hadn't yet. And the, for most people, the deadline is coming up. Obviously, you can raise salaries retroactively. But most of these firms have set July 1st deadlines. So we really were expecting things to to be done, in the, at least today, tomorrow. And so that was one that waited a really long time. We'll see. I, I do really think that we're going to get the the Dentons and the Norton Rose news in the very near future, if not today. But we'll see. 
you have you've been tipped off to some stories from associates that have been told, you know, we're going to have a big meeting today or mm-hmm. we're going to have a big meeting, you know, Friday or or that kind of thing, only to be told that, you know, here's something else, you know, here are new partners here. Yes. Are, so what? what tell me. Kazowitz is actually one of those. They sent out two memos after big meetings explaining, congratulate these people on becoming partners, which to associates who are actually living on pins and needles about their raises, finding out that their colleagues are about to become millionaires was not really what they wanted to hear. But yeah, now the first one to do that was a firm called Vetter Price, uh, who had who two days, two or three days after the first move, decided to call all the associates into a room for a champagne party. Everyone came in happy, and then they found out that it was just to announce partners, and there was no news about compensation. Uh, those folks were fairly fairly annoyed. Yeah. General counsel started weighing in in the days after the raise was announced, uh, or the raises were announced. Many saying something to the effect of, "Law firms can run their businesses the way that they want, but don't expect us to pay for it." How did corporate counsel respond to the associate raises? It, it was it was not unexpected. Uh, Any time that a firm does something like this, they they will push back like that because they, they're concerned that prices are going to go up. It was a little awkward, I thought, to have, uh, in particular, one of the general counsel involved who said something along those lines was from a company that actively took a giant taxpayer bailout at one point. And I was like, you know, maybe you're not in the position to t- counsel other people on taking money uh, if you took a bailout to pay off your million dollar bonuses around the company. So maybe you should slow your roll. Uh, yeah, I mean, they're going to be upset, and but ultimately it's a cost of doing business. I do think that not 100% of this raise is going to be passed on to the clients. I think that some partners are going to take some shaves. I think that the technology as it's been building, they're just getting more productive. And I don't necessarily know as though the firms are going to suffer by paying a little bit more because they're going to do more business. You can you can do more in a day now than you could when I was a first year associate. So I don't think it's going to be as big a deal as these general counsel want, want it to be. But wow, were they were they ready? They jumped right on that grenade as soon as it was out there. I don't want to pay a cent more. Since the financial crisis of 2008, along with the rise of alternative fee arrangements, has been this notion that GCs don't want to pay for inexperienced associates to work on their matters, that the first-year associates provide very little value. That notion pays into the response that we've heard from corporate counsel about raises. In-house counsel are fighting a battle, right? They have to keep costs down. They want quality legal work and they want to keep it down. And they tend to have some degree of leverage, depending on how big they are as a as a client, to push firms to discount first-year associate salaries and stuff like that. The problem with that, of course, is you don't get experienced lawyers without them at one point being first years. And the idea that 100% of the cost of training lawyers has to be borne by the big firm is something that is frankly ridiculous. And it's also true from the in-house perspective. Where do these in-house people come from? They come from being first years at the big firms and then realizing it's awful to work at a big firm and they need to move and their headhunter moves them over to an in-house. So it's it's I understand the impulse to try and say we're not going to pay for training. But at a certain point, someone has to pay for this training that the big firms are, frankly, doing a service to the industry by providing. Well, so one idea that a source of ours floated to us was we were told that some GCs are unhappy because 
in addition to the other ideas that we just talked about, that as many of them are bringing more of their legal team in house, Mm -hmm. these raises will make it that more difficult. Yeah, actually, I uh, just today I saw a thing out of a a meeting, uh, just a a quote out of a meeting of the uh, ACC, the Corporate Council Organization, where somebody, I didn't have all the details, but the clip of the quote I got was they were starting to say, you know, you have to entice talent to leave these firms. Now it's going to be harder to do that because of how much more money they're making. Frankly, we do more work now. We should be the ones getting raises. And it's probably going to have to happen. If if this doesn't lead to a economic collapse and every firm laying off everybody, which, again, the numbers suggest it might. But if it doesn't do that, the firm, the in-house councils at the big banks and all have to take action because otherwise they're just going to be behind the times when they've already brought so much work in-house. Right. So we talked about that some partners will, will take a shave. Mm-hmm. The firms, I mean, I don't know that it's a super significant shave, right? You know, yeah. the, the firms that are giving these raises are very profitable institutions. The argument could be made that these firms very much can afford the raises without raising their clients' bills. Mm-hmm. After all, at Average profits per partner at an AMLA 100 firm are $1.6 million. So is a $20,000 raise to the lowest rung, you know, that big of a deal? No, uh, it, it's not. And then obviously there's bigger raises as you go up, but that's one of the one of the interesting aspects. Well, and of this, fewer associates at yeah, each level. Right? Yeah, true. So, yeah, it winnows down. It's a pyramid. Yeah. And but one of the interesting things about this is it does hit to how the firms have chosen to orient themselves, right? Because some firms have tried to maintain a very, very non-leveraged one or two associates per partner. Those firms obviously have not been able to take huge advantage of the associates work and therefore have suffered somewhat financially for that, where as opposed to a firm that has one partner with 10 billing out 10 people under them obviously is bringing in more money off that associate work. But the flip side is when it comes time to a raise, the smaller fir- the firm that's not as leveraged can each partner can give up that 20 grand and the firm where one person has 10 is 10 associates under them that's 10 times the amount of shave they're going to have to take right. so that's been that's been one of the lagging aspects and i think when i look at the top firms in profits and the ones that haven't acted it struck me as though there was going to be a correlation there and then i did the numbers and there really wasn't it seems fairly haphazard who's decided to move and who hasn't okay so let's get let's get meta or i guess i could say let's get meta again mm-hmm. <laughs> at, at at big law business we've posted probably about 10 different stories about different aspects of the associate salary raise. Uh, We were invited onto the radio to talk about it. One of our stories is already one of our tops all times in terms of page views for our site. All of them have gotten significant traffic and response on social media. How many stories is Above the Law posted on this topic? (laughs) How's traffic? Uh, And talk about the obsession and popularity of this story. Well, okay, I'll take take all of these. Uh, How is traffic? We have been around for 10 years. We've had some very good months, including when the economy collapsed and everyone got fired back in the 2009. And this month is, is by a significant amount the biggest traffic month in the history of the website uh by yeah by a good healthy amount uh how much have we written about it we've obviously written some stories that aren't about it so i can't really say exactly but i believe we are at 
think we think we have just not not counting columnists who we have obviously every day, but of the main editorial staff, I think we have something in the neighborhood of 300 posts this month. I'm going to I tried to count and I gave up. I just I just actually ran the stats this morning, so I know how much each of the five editors has done. I just tallied them in my head, and I think it's around 300. And so, and then, so what about this obsession and the popularity? That why I mean, people want this, right? Like, yeah. what? Are, so, I mean, I mean, people want it. It's also they. One of the things that I've been getting the most from associates is emails back of people saying, "Thank you for this story. I just printed it out and sent it to the partner who makes my decisions for me." Uh, people are using it as leverage uh, and to convince and pressure everyone else around them. So that's the public service that I feel we're doing is helping out those firms that just haven't quite moved. Do some uh, do some convincing. The uh, yeah, I mean, everybody's kind of interested in what the salary is going to be. And there's a plus side to that, right? Like people shouldn't be if they're doing the same amount of work, not compensated the same way as the person next to them. There's a market there and we're providing that information that lets that market function, I think, in the most efficient way. The downside of it, of course, is I was talking a little bit about earlier is sometimes I worry that I'm feeding the beast of I mean, I had a friend who is not in law school who uh, went a different grad school path, but who wrote me saying, wow, look at this. I guess I'm going to have to go to law school now. And I was like, no, don't, don't let this change that decision. <laughs> I mean, maybe you do need to, but don't allow this set of raises to convince you because ultimately this money does, you know, you're already in debt. This money is good, but this money only really pays off after a number of years. And there's a lot of things that can happen between when you start and when you end. People fixate on that 180 and the fact that they might make 200 some odd three, four years in. But the problem is three, four years in is when you're not going to make partner at that firm. So you need to lateral to another firm and that firm doesn't pay that market. And so you aren't going to end up with that money. So don't make your decisions on what you're going to do based on that calculus. Even a little bit more meta, if you can believe it. Mm -hmm. um, this is this is really uh, legal website editor problems. Have you left any images of money on the table? Are you all tapped out? We are so into stock images of money. I actually early on, uh, some people were giving us flack, and so I created a very BuzzFeed worthy slideshow of stock issues of money, where I tongue-in-cheek pretended that we thought all of these were really hot pictures. I then included in this slideshow some more funny jokes for the, like, five people who decided to click all the way to the end. But, yeah, like, it, we've we've really stretched the Getty Images stock image stock, you know, I, I say stock image stockpile, I guess, to uh, get every last money picture we can. There are 900 pages of images when you run the search money in Getty Images. So we have not run out of them yet. What is next? Is it just a matter of you know, following the firms and seeing who moves next and what they move. Are there are there new ideas on this story outside of that, or how 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 long does this story last? I, it, you know, I don't know. Uh, we did think it was going to last a little bit. We thought it was going to 
stretch out a little bit more. That one firm would move and it might take two, three days for somebody to figure out to move. But it really started really fast. Now we're entering the new phase of it, though. I think we're entering a phase where there are a few people who are outliers who haven't moved. We're going to see what happens to them. I think there's going to be a lot of shaming, a lot of angry associates discussions of what's going on with them. We're also going to see some people who do end up moving and there'll be little twists. For instance, we had uh, we had a couple of the last few movers. Some of them have raised salaries, but then you read the fine print, and while most of these firms are raising salaries as of you know the end of this week, they're raising them in January. And you you see that's where they're trying to kind of shave off and get all the good PR with none of the bad consequences. And I think that's the phase that we're going to start getting into. We're going to have some discussion of a firm that looks like looks like they may have actively been trying to troll us, as in we got multiple anonymous tips from multiple different numbers that they had matched, and then they now are saying, look above the law's wrong, we didn't match. We're a little we're a little confused what that is, what was trying to go on there. We don't know if that might have been a concerted effort to try and undermine us. If it was, then they failed because we're just going to make fun of them for it. So, How often does law firm PR or law firm marketing people get involved in this story? How often are they the ones trying to... You know, you'd think they'd be involved a lot more because this is a great story for them. It, but weirdly, they aren't. Uh, the, first few, the first few firms we were able to just, we'd get the tip, immediately call PR. PR would immediately call back enthusiastically. Yep, we did it. But a lot of the others, you call them and they say, we don't have a comment. We'll get back to you like maybe tomorrow. And we're like, well, we're going to go with this. Why don't you, why aren't you, did no one let you in on the fact that the firm was making a giant PR move? Because that's a little unfortunate for your sake. The smaller firms have been more aggressive about it. If you're a small firm trying to make a, make a jump, if you're a litigation boutique trying to say to the world, hey, Harvard grad, we want you with us because we're going to make, make the world different, their PR is all over talking to us directly. We get those, we get those before the associates start writing us. But yeah, it's all over the place. Is this just another indicator of the separation going on between these super rich law firms and everyone else? And also a part of this question, you know, what are the big takeaways here? What are the what are the biggest things that we should um, that we should that this is significant of? Yeah, the the biggest takeaway is the world of law is still profitable. The big law firms are still making a lot of money. They have the best work, the most complex work, the most profitable work. They're bringing in a lot of money. They're very productive and they can share the wealth, whether it's 180 or they should have maybe pushed to 190 or 200 to like get ahead of the market that they were trying to be leaders in and have found themselves very much in the middle in. But whatever it is, there's money to be made there and they are willing to share it. Um, The downside is I think that to something we were saying earlier, the big takeaway is that bimodial curve is going to keep stretching out. The haves in the legal industry are still going to make more, 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 and the have-nots are going to sit there at that bump 
that is really just not enough to pay for a legal education. Uh, we have a, a lot of people think that above the law says don't go to law school. Law schools are bad. And to some extent, that's true because there are a lot of really terrible law schools. But the real problem here is that it's not that we don't want there to be law schools, but it's that there's a massive lawyer shortage in this country. It just doesn't happen to be on Park Avenue. There's a massive lawyer shortage. And if some good lawyer wants to go to a law school, even a mediocre bad law school, there's still going in a lot of them, except for a few of the state schools, they're still going 200 grand in debt. And when you say to them, we need a public defender in Fargo, North Dakota, they say, I can't afford to do that. And they can't get the job at Cravath. They can't afford to do the job that needs to be done. And that's when they end up going to the, what the law schools in their infinite PR wisdom are calling JD advantage jobs, which is where they get a job that they probably were otherwise going to get anyway, working in a bank. But that's the only place that they can go to make that money. And the law schools improbably pretend, see, they got that job because they had that law degree, even though they aren't really using it. And it's like, well, you, you put them in this bad place. And now what we have is two problems. We have somebody who's in debt not doing the law, and we have still nobody filling the job that needs to be filled. And that only gets worse as this curve stretches and stretches further out, and more and more people think that they're chasing a pot of gold that is a very slim and small pot of gold. Right, Joe, thanks for coming in. Hey, no problem. For more, check out biglawbusiness.com. While you're there, you can sign up for our daily newsletter. Our email address is biglawbusiness at bna.com. Follow Big Law Business on Twitter at biglawbiz. Follow me on Twitter at joshblockNYC. Follow Joe on Twitter at Joseph Patrice. Big Law Business is a production of Bloomberg BNA's cross-platform businesses. The podcast is produced and edited by me, Casey Sullivan and Gabe Friedman write and edit the articles on our website. Blake Edwards is our correspondent. Technical and website design is handled by Philip Ramsey and his Blue Sky team. Cassie Whiteside heads up commercial strategy. If you would like to become a sponsor of our podcast or our website, please email her at cwhiteside at bna.com. And Scott Mazarski oversees the whole big law business operation. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a few weeks with a new episode. Subscribe on iTunes so that you don't miss it. 